Hey everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. My name is J.R. Hildebrand, and this week, Jack Benny and I will be taking your questions. Nothing's off limits as we talk about the future of IndyCar, silly season, rules, and a whole host of other topics. Hello, Joe. It's good to be back. You have to say a special thank you to everyone who tuned in for our ranking of the top 10 IndyCar drivers of the year. Definitely head back and check that out, uh, that episode if you haven't already, along with our extensive backlog, which is full of fun episodes to keep the off-season hopefully relatively interesting. And also a special shout out to JR's own top 10 rankings that was printed on, printed, that was published on <laughs> the racer's website. You should definitely go and check that out because... It features more swearing than what you might find in some of my work, and uh, <laughs> generally just generally just a lot more exciting than most of my work. I think it was great. I'm just really trying to make it. it conversational, Jack. It was great. It was absolutely great. Uh, there's also loads of fun things happening for 2022 that Jr. and I will be revealing soon. But in the meantime, Jr., let's get into this one. Uh, I'm at Jack Benyon on Twitter, and Jr. is at Jr. Hildebrand on Twitter. So by all means, if you're listening to this now and you've got a question or you think of something related to one of the questions that we get asked during this episode, then do let us know. Or if there's someone from the IndyCar paddock that you'd like to have on as a guest or for us to interview or grill, let us know, because we're always up for a bit of grilling on this podcast. I know you're a massive fan of these episodes, JR, and we love engaging with IndyCar fans. So why don't you kick us off with your choice of a first question from the ones that we received this week? All right, cool. Yeah, we got a lot of great questions. So we're just kind of kind of going to rip through a few of them um, or uh, get through as many as we can today. This is from Double Waved Yellow at Double Waved Yellow on Twitter. Uh, what's what's your what's next in your opinion for Hinch? He's got a long career in the media um, and as an ambassador for the sport ahead of him, but I don't feel like he's quite done driving yet. I would agree with that, Jack. I, you know, I'm interested in your opinion, just kind of in terms of the silly season that's going on here. I guess it's it's my general perspective that I don't see I don't see a full time ride um, in his on his horizon in the IndyCar series. Um, I've certainly heard you know just the same as everybody else through the media that he's got some options in the sports car paddock. Um, I think in the U.S., obviously, particularly looking ahead to 2023. I think a lot of drivers, frankly, are trying to get themselves aligned properly to be in the mix for those LMDH DPI rides, um, because a lot of them are going to be at least semi-factory, you know, programs. So getting aligned with manufacturers now is is a part of that process. Uh, yeah, as, as Double Wave the Yellow said here in the in the in the question. He's obviously there. There's a lot of directions that Hinch can go here and be successful. But in terms of what he's got going on in the car, what do you think he's? What do you think is kind of on the immediate horizon for him, Jack? I think he's doing a great job in sports cars. I think a quite a maybe underrated aspect of sports cars is the teamwork element of it because you get so many drivers coming from a single seater background where it's been really cutthroat rising to the top, and then you know it's really difficult to find seats, and you're always fighting against the next competitor, and then as soon as you get to you know, the big sports car events, you, it, it really depends on the amount of teamwork that you're able to do with the different drivers. And also when you're working with drivers who aren't at your standard. So if you're working with different levels of drivers, maybe you're working with an amateur driver or uh, someone's just graded lower by the, the FIA, then it's really important that you help them and, and help them to develop and, and bring them on. So uh, if we're talking about a character who would be perfect for that role, James Hinchcliffe is absolutely perfect. You know, everyone, yeah, I don't think I don't think anyone's got a bad word to say about Hinch and would love to work with him in in, in that aspect. So I think for from the sports car element, the only problem for him might be that he hasn't taken the jump sooner and that 
as you already said, there's going to be a lot of competition for rides over that that way with all of the, uh, the the rule changes coming up, especially for when we really kick things off in 2023. So, I think I, I wonder if if maybe a hinge of done a you know maybe scored a prototype drive a couple of years ago maybe that would have been much better for his chances of you know being you know better in contention now but I still think there'll be teams looking at him and, and really uh, you know taking him seriously as a proposition in IndyCar I'd still love to see him do a few races and I'm a big fan of you know I think some people or you know we'll we'll talk about this later on when we get to oval racing in IndyCar I don't like it when we do the same thing over and over again and expect different results and for Hinch He's had such a you know a storied career in IndyCar, but it's just never quite. He's just one of them drivers where the, it's just been so much bad luck for him, and it's just never really come together. And I wonder if just doing a part program where he can just focus on you know however many number of races it is, whether it's just the 500 or whether it's five to six races, where he can just pick the events, the ones that he likes, and really focus and hone in on his preparation for those, and really give him a good go with a good team. I think that be um, that might be a good option for him to go. Obviously, it's a shame that he won't be driving full time in, in IndyCar next year for sure, but. You know, I think um, it's, there's no question of talent with Hinch, really, is there? It's it's bringing everything together in the whole package, and hopefully, you can find something that really works for him next season. So, next up, JR, we've got Stuart Coulter at SWRC Sky. Uh, I don't know how to say that in one word, but we'll spell it out, and that makes it easier. Outside the sphere of the Indy 500, oval racing appears to be in sharp decline with fewer and fewer ovals on the calendar. What should IndyCar do to stop this demise and prevent its calendar from morphing into latter-day car with no oval races at all? JR, what's, uh, this is a, a broad and far-reaching topic that doesn't have an easy answer, but I think my only opinion on this is, uh, what we were talking about with Hinch basically is that we, you know, there's been many things done to try and improve and, um, you know, bring bigger crowds and things to oval racing. And the, there doesn't seem to be at the moment, any kind of radical ideas to change things. Um, I, I don't think we should just be doing the same thing over and over again. So we, we should just go back to a track that we went to 20 years ago and hope that, you know, that the, the same number of people are going to, or more, uh, you know, more people are going to come to the track just because we've gone back to that track uh, because that is not a, a long-term solution to the problem. What's your thoughts on this? I think it's, it's in some ways complicated, um, you know, I, I, but I would say, you know, look at the races that are, that have been on the IndyCar calendar, the oval races that have been on the IndyCar calendar over the last, you know, whatever, this generation, let's say like five or 10 years that obviously you've got Indy, um, in terms of crowd at the race, at the actual event, frankly, a lot of the short oval events do pretty well from that perspective. Iowa was usually packed. Um, Gateway's done a great job. It's it's always it's always had a huge crowd. The first year in particular, um, I was in I was fortunate to be in that race. Um, it had kind of one of the best vibes of like an opening weekend anywhere that I've ever been. Like the the grandstands were packed. Like people were you know, hustling to get into the track before the race started, you know, it's felt, felt very proper from that perspective. Um, you know, the thing that the oval events lack compared to the average IndyCar race, it's a lot of street circuits. Now, basically we've got a good mix that the, the road and street circuits on the IndyCar schedule are good street circuits and historically relevant road, you know, uh, road courses that have like a long standing history of people showing up to like any race that happens at those places, road America, like you could hold a, you know, a lemons race there and people would show up to watch it. Cause it's just race fans close by and they love the track and they love the atmosphere and, and all that kind of stuff. So I think oval oval event weekends 
just have a little bit of an uphill battle from that perspective there it's just it's not it's not the same type of um motorsports fan environment for like an entire weekend it's more just a thing that you're going to show up and go see the race that's that's basically it and what we've seen is it, this sounds maybe like an overly simplified version of what goes on at those at those circuits at those tracks and it's this is not to speak ill of any of the promoters or the or the tracks that don't end up um you know bringing in a huge huge audience but like a big part of why why the Indianapolis 500 is has 250,000 people at it every year is because of the fact that there's like a year round, um, you know, promotion of people showing up to do this thing. Like it feels like it's a it's a community gathering to show up at the Indianapolis 500. There's something more to it. There's there's something there's like a gravitas that exists. And obviously part of that is just because it's indie, but it's also there's so many components that there's so many things that bring people to race. And it's like a this sort of mass gathering um, localized around still very localized around the Indianapolis area. Right. Like the majority of the people that come to the Indianapolis 500 are like from within an hour of Indianapolis. And so I guess I just think that 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 tactic has to be employed at any of these other places that we go to it happened it just occurs a little bit more naturally when you've got a street circuit that's in the middle of a downtown area you know like it's it's just it's it's more of something that people are going to show up to and go see it seems more obvious that it's going to be i think from a fan's perspective it seems more obvious that this is like worth spending a day with your kids or whatever to go do um you know, we could talk a little bit there, there. There's a conversation to be had about the the racing product that exists when you go to super speedways or like one and a half mile ovals. Um, but and, and that that's a component of this. But realistically, when you look over the last 20 years from from back in the cart days, I mean, people forget that you know, California Speedway, you see these pictures of California Speedway in the early days of cart when it was packed, there's like 200,000 people at California Speedway out in Fontana. But within a couple of years, there was like nobody in the grandstands for those events. And it was still cars that were going like 240 miles an hour. So I think we have a little bit of a weird, you know, rose colored kind of perspective looking back at other eras when we think that the oval racing was really popular or at certain tracks. And, and I think to be totally frank, same thing with the IRL. A lot of people like just look back at these crazy finishes in at Kansas and, you know, Kentucky and whatever from the IRL days. And it's kind of like, okay, well, those events were not drawing big crowds. They were getting, you know, they were coming up completely empty in terms of TV ratings you know, it's like, okay, well, for, for like the hardcore IndyCar fan, those those might present some really exceptional moments or something. But if we're talking about the series and the health of the series, you need to be getting people to actually show up to the events. You need to be producing something that gets people engaged on TV to watch the next one of those kinds of events. Um, you know, I, I guess there's there's a lot of things that factor into that and and at the end of the day it's to me a combination of of making sure that the the on-track product is something that 
reflects the the sort of values core values and principles of what the series is about um at the other places it races at as well um and 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 just unfortunately like really having to invest in getting the local markets around these events to get crank get spooled up enough that people know for sure that there's something going on i mean we talk about that even at, at places like laguna you know i mean it's it's not this is not uh this is not an issue that's specific to oval tracks um i just think the oval races and you see this for nascar too the oval races have just there has been a bit of a decline because i think the the format of those events hasn't become any more interesting basically in the last 20 or 30 years we have got iowa coming back onto the the calendar next year so we are having you know more ovals than we had this year so that's one good thing Stuart. if i'm presuming you're asking about ovals because you're an oval fan so if that is the case we've at least got iowa coming back i think it's important to acknowledge the impact of the pandemic within all this as well i think it's obviously had a, a massive effect on race promoters and the difficulty behind trying to keep these races going and i think um you know, people like Green Savory deserve a, a lot of credit for the amount of work they've put in behind the scenes to make these events work in the in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, I think we've been lucky to have as many races on the calendar that, that we've had. And uh, the other thing I would say is that Roger Penske is a big fan of having more ovals on the calendar. And if that's the case, then, you know, Roger usually makes things happen the, the way he wants. And if he's decided that he wants more ovals on the calendar, I'm sure that'll be one of the, the key talking points when it comes to the calendar for the 2023. It might just be that again, because of the pandemic, we're just a couple of years behind where we probably may have been at this point. Um, you know, Richmond was one obviously that was due to be on the, on the calendar before the, the pandemic happened. So uh, I think, yeah, I think the pandemic has, has slowed things down quite a bit there, but I wouldn't be too surprised Stuart, to see, you know, talk start to intensify a little bit more and in terms of oval events coming back onto the calendar in the future, which we all would love to see. JR, I'm going to move us on to Tyler Tucker at Tuck Graphics. That was easy to read out. I could do that one. The big talk continues to be about Kyle Larson as being a once in a generational talent. He has won some of the biggest dirt races and now he is a Cup Series champion as well. Uh, do you think that if Kyle was to run the 2022 Indy 500, that he has a shot at winning out of the gate? What do you think, Joe? Um, I'm I I've put this on wax on some like uh, kind of maybe not in completely public forums, but um, I'm just I'm gonna throw it out there in the pot. I think Larson ends up in a Penske car for the 500 next year. Just gonna say that I have I have no internal info about this at all, but it just seems like a somewhat you know, it's, it's a Chevy, you know, Roger and the, and the team is downsized to three full-time entries. They got the stuff, they got some people. Um, you know, I, I think that, that Roger, you know, the, the, uh, I mean, Roger specifically, not necessarily Penske in like a modern day racing perspective, but Roger Penske over the many decades of his tenure in this sport has clearly seen from a team and sponsorship and uh, just, you know, kind of the most, from the most zoomed out perspective, um, the value in these sort of crossover situations. He's, he's been one of the grandest facilitators of this happening, you know, over the course of, um, you know, sort of the last 50 or 60 years in the sport, all the way back to Mark Donahue. So, um, you know, Kyle is obviously incredibly talented dude. Uh, he, you don't do the things that he's doing. Like he's the only guy in on the face of the planet that could be doing the things that he's doing right now. I think, um, 
and I want to see him in an IndyCar. Uh, if I had an IndyCar, I'd be recruiting him to put him in it. Uh, and not just because I think it'd be a great PR move, but because I think he's going to haul ass when he gets in one and he's going to figure it out. And if he's in a good car, absolutely. He's going to have a shot to win it. I don't, you know, are, do you, do you have all of the tools to, you know, go from the back to the front or, you know, deal with hard situations or beat the beat Scott Dixon in the last five laps. If it's just a totally mono a mono battle, like probably not in the first year, but sometimes guys win the 500 without having to do that. So I, I think that to some degree, if he's in the right position and he's kind of on the right side of the manufacturer fence and that kind of stuff, he definitely has just the, you know, built in skill to be able to take advantage of, of being in the right situation. So I, I wouldn't question that for a second. And uh, like, if this doesn't happen next year, there's a whole bunch of people that are doing something extraordinarily wrong, basically, as far as I'm concerned. So that's uh, that's my general point of view. What do you think, Jack? I think that it would be a fantastic thing to see. I'm not convinced. Obviously, Penske have had two pretty shaky seasons at the, the 500. So um, if we're talking about what Kyle Larson needs to win the Indy 500, obviously the car underneath him is the very first thing that he needs to start with. Uh, there's 33 drivers at the absolute top of their game entering that race every year with a lot of experience of that race and if you've not got the car underneath you then you're not going to win it it's as simple as that uh so so that's a big question mark not saying it's you know it's beyond Penske to turn everything around and win the 500 next year because obviously that would be totally a uh, something you would expect of Penske even though their performance over the past two years hasn't been top notch so yeah if he ends up at Penske I think the first thing there to think about is is that car going to be competitive enough to win the race I also think um, that uh, I think the my, my personal opinion is that at the moment it is not possible for a rookie to come in and win the Indy 500. I think the the standard of drivers that we've got in the series right now and the standard of teams is just too high for someone who hasn't done the race before to come in, uh, nail the car setup, nail the nail the preparation over the month, and also nail the strategy in the race. Um, obviously strategy at the Indy 500 has always been difficult. It's not a new thing, but the the combination of the level of the playing field, the level of the teams, how difficult it is to qualify, you know, the the strategy involved, you know, I don't think, I don't see anyone coming in, uh, even someone of Kyle Larson's ability and just winning their first IndyCar, Indy 500 race. So uh, I, I don't see it happening in the first year, but I hope he would, he would make a good effort of it and, and come and do a, a few years of it. I think the other... The other big thing there is the, the the travel involved between, you know, doing the Charlotte race and, and doing the Indy 500. It's a difficult thing to do. Um, it's difficult to be focusing full time on defending a NASCAR championship and then going to try and win the Indy 500 at the same time. Um, assuming that Kyle doesn't get a, a whole load of testing before the, the month of May. Um, I think it's a, a difficult task. But saying that, Definitely acknowledge that this season will go down as one of the best in American motorsports history for what Kyle's been able to achieve. To a certain extent, I think it would be great to see him come to the 500 and really um, introduce himself to a new portion of the American motorsport fan base, the ones that don't necessarily follow NASCAR that closely, which is obviously not many when it comes to the American motorsport fan base. But um, yeah, I think to see him in the biggest race would be absolutely fantastic. And uh, I don't think he would win it his first go, but it would be great to see him there. Well, I would say... 
you're being way too practical about uh, about your response there. Um, But you're absolutely right on on a lot on a lot of those points. I mean, and I and I don't want it. I don't want to sound like I think he's going to win the race if he comes and does it. Uh, That's certainly not my opinion. But um, that's what everyone heard when you were talking. (laughs) You you basically said Kyle Larson is the best driver in the world. He would win any race. Going to win. No, but I th- and I think you're right. I-, I guess there's a couple of couple of things as you were talking that I j- just want to throw out there before we move along is, you know, that I think Kyle's an interesting. He's an inter- It's an interesting case for a guy that's you know still young, racing full time in NASCAR. Like I still personally, I I don't know. I don't know him that well, but like I don't think he cares that much about his Cup career personally. Like I think if it if if he whatever like if he got an indycar ride like i think he'd come and drive indycars for a year and like race as much cup as he could like there's a little bit of that there's you know his contracts and and it doesn't always like work that way but if it was just up to him frankly i think he's happy to do like 500 dirt races a year you know um so i it'd be it'll be interesting should this happen it'll be interesting to see how he approaches doing this like does he approach doing this like it's just another race that's on his calendar or does he say okay screw it like i'm gonna skip the nascar race that's on qualifying weekend because i'm gonna make the playoffs anyway because i'm gonna win five nascar races over the course of the year and actually commit to doing all of the things that you need to do just for because like you brought up just from like a the 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 timeline of how those events overlap over the course of those couple of weeks it's you know super tricky as it is but i guess you know my opinion is is at least shaded slightly by looking at kurt bush come over and do it a few years ago and it's kind of like he ended up finishing sixth was he gonna win that race no because there was a bunch of things that were that were happening there that were just he probably wasn't 100 percent prepared for for them to happen the way that they happened but I, I guess I think if you're in the right car and you're in the right situation, my point originally was that you could end up in a scenario where your the strategy is kind of isn't that isn't that tricky and you're among the guys that are cycled up to the front towards the end of the race. And I think if I'm comparing Kyle Larson right now to Kurt Bush a few years ago, I think Kyle's got a little bit of a leg up just in terms of his absolute skill jumping into all kinds of different stuff still as a young guy able to able to kind of address being in those scenarios so it's definitely an intriguing component of what we've got going to the 500 next year all right so our next question is from kieran slash mega uh at mega versus primus we'll be the judge of the omega kieran not you (laughs) um all right so this may seem like a strange question that he's this or Kieran saying this, not me. Um, but can people support more than one team? I want to support a couple of teams or would it be strange to support more than one team? I think that's a very reasonable question personally. And I am going to definitely give you the go ahead here to support more than one organization. I think teams would be happy to let you do that as well. Uh, yeah, there's lots of great drivers, lots of teams. Um, I mean, I'm interested in in what your what your selections are here. So we're gonna we're gonna have to have a follow up a uh, little back and forth here on on Twitter, I think, to understand who you're supporting. But um, yeah, I think it's 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 more than more than kosher to support more than one team, Jack. 
JR, JR says you're mega Kieran because you can support more than one team. I um as a journalist, I obviously have to be have to be unbiased and don't support any team or driver. But I think if you're a fan and it helps your viewing experience or your enjoyment of the series to back multiple drivers, then then why not? You know, I think obviously uh, being partisan to a team or a driver or an athlete is part of enjoying sports, I guess, for for a lot of people. But if you if you want to follow more than one team or more than one driver, then why not? I think obviously where motorsport differs to other sports is you know your driver can have um, you know, really bad weeks, or he can retire, or uh, be uh, taken out of the race, or something. So it's nice to have a, a different option, I guess. If you're watching a 500 <laughs> mile race and your driver gets taken out on the first lap, then you've got someone else to to follow. For the Don't next, just do uh, it because you want to hedge your bets. <laughs> That's my only caveat. Um, but yeah, thanks, Kieran, for the for the good question. We'll move along to the next one. It's from Chris at uh, Chris Chrissy eighty eight. If there was an IndyCar race in the UK, where would you have it? This is a this is actually a really good question. Um, I mean, the first couple that comes, the obvious is like, oh, go to Silverstone. Well, I'd say screw that. You know, F1 already goes there. We already have this kind of like doubled up situation at Coda. The beauty of IndyCar is that right, right, wrong or otherwise, we go to a bunch of places that F1 won't go to. So um, I'd say like Brands GP would be mega. Um even like, you know, I don't know. Can we go to Thruxton? Can we go to, uh, there's lots of cool tracks in the UK. Uh, Jack, what comes to mind for you? Well, are you, uh, are you biased towards brands for any reason? No, I mean, I've driven there. Well, that's what I was going to say. I, I, maybe some people don't know that you did uh, a one GP there. Yeah. It's just, I mean, the GP circuit there is like pretty rad. Like it's, it's definitely not that much stuff. I, I guess not that much stuff goes on it. I mean, a lot of the, I think a lot of even like the kind of, club level stuff just runs on the indie circuit right um yeah yeah so that was a really cool really cool to be able to drive the gp track um you know definitely like makes a man out of you um around the, around the back half of the track um and indie cars there would be cool indie cars got a good indie, the the spec of indie car right now with kind of as relatively low down for us as it is is it's just really good for that kind of circuit because you don't have the insanely high cornering energies, even through fairly fast corners that, that like an F1 car does, you know, like this would, this would be a laughable question if, an, if modern F1 cars could run at the brands hatch GP circuit. So I'm, I'm all for kind of leaning into the IndyCar formula to say, all right, where could we go that, where could we go that people would love to see like some proper action from fast modern race cars that just F1 would never even touch at this point. And the GP, you know, GP circuit just stands out as that kind of place. Yeah. But we obviously we had the champ car trophy at brands. And I think part of the problem there was part of the bigger problem that you have now are the cars evolved to be so big that just overtaking on basically there's very few circuits in the UK where current indie cars would be able to overtake in a acceptable way. Really? I think, if we're drawing this on a piece of paper, I think Thruxton is 100% the best best place to go for IndyCar. <laughs> but uh, going flat through church side by side with two <laughs> IndyCars at, at Thruxton would not end well, I don't think, for the safety of the drivers. So I think Silverstone would be the only realistic option where you could race IndyCars and where it would be actually entertaining to watch and not just one on qualifying. But um, yeah, there's loads of places. Anglesey's a beautiful circuit, too small, no overtaking, but would be fantastic to see IndyCars going around there. And also 
Cadwell Park, I'm pretty sure the cars would be fully airborne, um, which would be also pretty cool to see, but Hell also yeah. dangerous. <laughs> so any car, we need we need like another spec, another aero spec that's just like take the wings off. and firestone give us like a super sticky tire and go to the places you used to be able to get some air and just let it rip yeah for sure i'm all for that there's there there are options but as as we said it's just it'd be so difficult to try and choose one based on where it would actually be a good race and it wouldn't just be going for the sake of it which is part of the reason why um you know it's probably not under consideration uh for for many championships not just indycar um but yeah, those are cool. Two cool kind of casual fun questions there. So thanks for those, Chris and Mega Kieran. Uh, let's move on to uh, the Brothers Hunt uh, at Hunt Brothers F1. IndyCar appears to be on the precipice of a boom era. What steps would you take to keep the series on its current trajectory and would races in different countries help or hinder it? I'm on team Zach Brown for this one. I don't think IndyCar should be going out of North America at the moment. Um Obviously, Mexico is a kind of an option, um, but I definitely wouldn't want to see. Um, I wouldn't want to see IndyCar personally go any further afield than that at the moment, because I think there's still work to be done in establishing the fan base and the the teams and series in in America and helping to to raise the the profile a little bit further. Obviously, precipice is a really good word because we're kind of just kind of teetering on that at the minute. We've got some great momentum. We've got some really big drivers in the series. We've got a phenomenal group of teams that are so close together. Um, even though uh, there's a, a real variety of budgets and and kind of uh, sponsor support and stuff like that for the team. So that's really cool to see. But I still think we're a little way off the kind of maybe uh, some of the glory days of the past. So I would like to see, um, which I think is the case anyway, is Mr. Penske focusing on um, really establishing the IndyCar brand in, in North America. And there's some, there is some cool stuff going on behind the scenes. It'd be, be nice to see um some development of the media strategy there but i'm sure that's uh, part of uh, the the whole Pence entertainment group's plan jr uh, do you have any strong opinions on this one definitely um i think <laughs> I, I would be that was rhetorical <laughs> yeah um i would basically agree that i, I th- in terms of the you know I, I think we do need to focus in north america i think mexico is an interesting you know space for that um, I think there's, uh, you know, just to speak about that for a second, I think there's some sort of interesting options like, you know, going back to Surfer's Paradise gets thrown out a lot. There are some sort of one-off events that are historically a part of like modern day IndyCar, Kart, Champ Car, places like, and and maybe, frankly, maybe Surfer's is the only one that's outside of North America that fits that criteria properly. But like you could go back there and I think that would be an ad rather than a distraction. Um, so it's not to say that, there's nothing outside of the US or North America that I think makes sense. But I I would agree that I think that IndyCars, IndyCar can build a with the way that you know me the media, digital media in particular works these days, like IndyCar can build a, an audience outside of North America without having to race outside of North America in a way that frankly it couldn't like 20 years ago. So that's just fundamentally a, a difference that I think it can it should it should look to take advantage of. Um, if you're asking me what I think this next steps are to continue this current trajectory and and make sure that it tips the right direction from this precipice that we're at, uh, I agree that this is a, a, a strongly worded question um, from the brothers hunt. I think that there's a few things like I sort of break down when I think about IndyCar or any of these 
championships, I sort of break it down in my mind into like, okay, what is the product itself? Like the actual racing product? What is that? Where should it be going? What's the sort of, you know, content communication distribution strategy? Like that's all sort of basically wrapped up in, in a bubble of media. What's, what's it doing to actually, um, you know, project that product out into the world to the general public, to its fan base. And then as a third component of that, which is bigger now than it's ever been. And there's opportunity now that wasn't, wasn't around. It was like, wasn't a thing. It wasn't, you didn't think about sports this way really, um, you know, a a decade ago is how are we building community in like a digital, both a, a sort of physical and digital space. And so those, those three things are like the, those are the the pillars that underpin um, sport, I think, basically at this point. And so for IndyCar, if I was to think about those three things, um, the beauty of it is that it's got a lot of it's got a lot of headroom in all of those areas. Right. Like in, if you compare it to Formula One, to the things that Formula One is doing with Drive to Survive with I mean, you look at frankly, you look at Formula One's like how Formula One exists along with its teams and drivers in the media space, in social land, like all of this stuff, it's just like head and shoulders. The Simply the amount of content is like orders of magnitude greater than where IndyCar is at. Like there's a lot of room for IndyCar to sort of expand what it does in these areas to grow in these where communities are developing now um, and, and where fan bases exist going, going to where they are, but just starting with kind of the product side of it, like IndyCar and I'm, I've always been a proponent of this. We've talked about on the pod before, like IndyCar has a chance now basically to become like the rawest, most powerful, most engaging, most interesting race cars to watch on the face of the planet like any the current spec indycar without any more downforce with like 1200 horsepower and qualifying trim like people it's like it's been so long since we've had thousand horsepower indycars that people just think that sounds completely absurd but the reality of it is like if you just uh, if you just let the engine spec be three liters instead of 2.4 or whatever, like they just make a thousand horsepower, like all day long tomorrow, you know, like that's not, it's not like a super hard or difficult thing to do. Um, I, I guess I think that IndyCar is, and, and thinking about it, even in like the cart heyday, IndyCar, just the, the difference between IndyCar and Formula One was IndyCar just always seemed a little like rougher around the edges, like the places that they went, the way the cars were, they all sort of worked together to create this distinctly sort of gritty, like it had sort of a the spirit of Americana built into it a little bit that it was just like, oh, it's not really perfect, but it's really awesome, you know? Um, compared to F1 being just this, this top tier, you know, the, the absolute pinnacle of the development of technology and, and precision and, and sort of engineering and all this stuff. Um, you know, IndyCar was a little bit more like, Hey, you've got a good idea. Yeah. Screw it. Just, let's go try it. It's fine. You know, well, and then, and then send the car out at wherever at Michigan, where they're going to 45 down the back straight. And, you know, we'll, we'll lick our finger and see what, see what direction the wind's blowing, you know? Um, 
And so I think IndyCar still, that's still kind of built into the spirit of IndyCar. It's just not, it's like, I think to those of us in the industry, it's not, uh, it doesn't come through with the degree of gravity that it like once did. It's, it, we're, we're kind of like a, a knockdown version of that where you still see it and it still has that vibe compared to other stuff. Um, but it's not truly remarkable to watch. And I think that if you compare, if you, if you brought that to the table, like if the actual on-track product was this just extraordinary thing to see one car do a qualifying lap, you know, at Detroit or wherever, like I still think of Montoya, you know, sparks flying when he's banging the rim off the curb, you know, at the exit of the last corner. If you can get back to a little bit of that where it's just like, I just want to tune in and watch this YouTube video on loop. Um, if you can get that vibe back, you, you, you draw some like, you know, sort of critical mass from drivers and within the community from that perspective, you really have something exciting to talk about. Like you have a truly differentiating thing that this is where, this is where the hardest cars to drive exist, period. And like, that would be sort of an unassailable statement to be making building your content strategy around that around these guys that are strapping into these machines um you know using the selecting the places the tracks that you go to to be sort of the accelerators of that vibe you know the the places that you're going to go to these places that are going to accentuate that aspect and kind of spirit of what's going on um, then I think a lot of the other stuff starts, to, you make the right decisions about your, you know, off track content strategy and, and how you're existing in the world of digital media and all this kind of stuff. And it just, to me, that's, that just, you know, even like sitting here talking about it, like, I want to be a part of that, you know, like that seems cool. So, um, I guess that's all just to say, like, I think that IndyCar IndyCar has some, some ways that it can distinctly differentiate itself even more from NASCAR, from Formula One, from the other stuff that's out there and, uh, and, and can certainly, you know, and I think could do that in a very focused way, just here in, here in the States, let alone, you know, kind of the, the surrounding areas, North America. Well, definitely hit rewind and listen to that again, because I really enjoyed it. And I think that needs to be written for the race because that sounded a little bit like a really, really intelligent seven-year-old saying that we need to have Hot Wheels cars with 8 million horsepower, but also with some really intelligent things thrown in at the same time that were far beyond the seven-year-old years. I, I think that was great. Uh, yeah, nothing to add. I think we've covered that perfectly, and I think we should move on. All right, Luca Rocco, you're next at LR Luca Ruocco. What does a driver feel in the last hour before the 500? Is there space for emotions, or are you so focused that you live in a sort of bubble? And he also adds, great pod, guys. Congrats. I can only assume that question's aimed at me as the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> JR, what does a driver feel in the last hour before the 500? And is there space for emotions? Well, I had, I, I kind of initially had to think like, when is actually the last hour? Because there's so much stuff, probably starting like two hours before the race actually starts is when things start to, you know, the, the dominoes start to fall sort of in terms of what you're doing. You're that whole morning you're trying, you know, for me at least, and I think most drivers are kind of in the same boat. You're trying to just sort of conserve energy. You know, you're trying not to get, not to get too spun up about anything in particular. You know, there's a lot of things that aren't really in your control. 
you you want to really I, I think for me it's it's interesting that you're I think in a lot of ways I don't I don't I probably don't think about it in this way while it's happening or that day but you're trying to just kind of maintain some sense of um, control over your own environment and and what you're doing that day that that morning you know you kind of you have a schedule of when you know you need to be in the green room before driver intros you know how driver intros are going to work you're going to go from there out to take a picture on the front row or on the you know on the pit straight um, then you're going to walk to your car and then there's a whole process of you know the national anthem and talking to your guys and getting in the getting strapped in and doing this whole thing so you kind of know all of that is going to happen on a fairly specific timeline in advance and so you're trying just not to become you know, you're, you're trying to make sure that you're not going to suddenly be late to something that you kind of have a, an awareness for what's going to be going on over that period of time so that you can just sort of settle in and keep your emotions in check and keep everything cool. Because with everything that's going on, it's sort of easy to become distracted by all of these different things, you know, it's one of the, one of the great things about IndyCar just generally, and definitely the Indy 500 is sort of the access that a lot of other people have to you in those moments, even just leading right up to the race. And, and I've never had an issue with anybody being disrespectful of that. Like I think fans and people that are on the grid walks and all that kind of stuff are, are, are great about that. But you compare that to formula one, like guys are just totally isolated from pretty much everything, but their team right up until the start of the race, more or less, you know, like it's a much more controlled environment in terms of, in terms of what's going on there. So I guess to maybe more directly answer this question, um, you know, you over time as, as a, you know, I've obviously done 11 Indy 500s now, um, you're trying to just kind of take it all in. Like I, you know, one of the things that I've learned to do is like actually pay attention during the national anthem and, and like, be psyched that there's a cool flyover when there's a good flyover and, and let some of those emotions that you almost, you almost can experience them more like a fan while they're happening, you know, because to sit there, to sit there 30 minutes before you're going to get in the car and actually go roll off stressing about the start of the race or thinking too much about anything in particular, it just, it just like, doesn't do you any good really. And so, um, I think a lot of guys are more relaxed, frankly, than, then you might think that they'd be um, for that entire period um, rolling up to the beginning of the race. And um, you, you have a couple of people around you. For me, it's always my wife. Um, you know, some guys have some friends and, you know, family and whatever. And um, you have those people that, that, you know, know the sort of headspace that you need to be in. And um, it's, it's actually, it's a part of the whole thing, the part of the 500 and the lead, the buildup just to any race that I think from the outside appears as though it might be like really high anxiety or, or high stress. And it's actually, I think one of the, one of the times as a driver that you sort of maybe enjoy the most because you, you just kind of know you, you get this feeling that it's like, okay, I'm about to go do this thing that like I'm here to do you know, and, and that's actually when you're in the right headspace and we're, we're with the right people, um, you know, that you're a part of a pretty select group that's going to get to do that that day. And, uh, and that's frankly like a, 
that's a really exciting feeling to have. I'm not surprised to hear that no one's been disrespectful to John Wick immediately before the Indy 500. I'm sure, <laughs> sure they'd be ended quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, so uh, um, I'll move us along. Uh, let's see. We've got... Uh, okay, great. Um, our good friend from someone who we, uh, we we talked to a lot and has been a vocal supporter of our, of our podcast. Thanks for that. Marty Triano. Um, I think he's like mt99 something or other on on twitter I, I i'm not sure off the top of my head we don't have it here this is a, got a direct a email that's why he didn't even tweet us yeah, just sent me an email, email. Yeah. this is that this is a good question um who is not an indie car that should be an indie car well i guess i i can I'll, I'll throw my uh hat in for this one first and then i'll toss it off to you jack honestly man i think there's there's a lot of drivers that i would love to see in IndyCar, we're starting to see some some more of the uh, you know junior formula guys from Europe looking at IndyCar. I think a little bit sooner as opposed to you know we've had a bit of a history of you know getting to F1 or not quite getting to F1, but but chasing that all the way, chasing that kind of F1 dream all the way to F1, and then you know looking at IndyCar as kind of a plan B. Uh, I do think there's some young guys in Europe that are starting to look at IndyCar as more of a viable option earlier in that process. Um, you know, and we're, and we're starting to see, you know, maybe even sort of the teams and sponsors from Europe thinking, thinking a bit in the same direction. So that's definitely a part of it. I think here in this, the, the couple of things that I think about are, um, of drivers that maybe we know a little bit better. There's a, a, a not small handful of, uh, NASCAR guys that I would love to just see get an IndyCar test, like any of the, any of the younger guys in NASCAR in particular, but let alone Kyle Busch. I mean, Kyle Busch just went and did the Nitro, Travis Pastrana's Nitro rally this last weekend and finished fourth. Like I was texting with him. He was like, yeah, he basically got three runs per day for three days. And he like gets into things. It just was full send right away. Like I, I just like, we've talked about Kyle Larson, uh, Chase Elliott. There's some guys that just have this really apparent, just natural skill and ability that I think IndyCar as a, as a sort of driving platform for racers is just somewhere that that can show through, you know? And, and so for anybody that sort of fits that criteria, whether they're coming from NASCAR or Formula E or rally or whatever, I think IndyCar is a really interesting place to be able to see driver, just to kind of see drivers react to a proper open wheel car. That's not like a super precision instrument, um, and just go drive. So uh, that's not super specific, I guess, but, but Jack, I wonder if you have anybody, if there's anybody that really stands out to you that you, you wish was over here or that you'd like to see come in the next couple of years. I agree. It'd be great for just American motorsport in general to see more people making a crossover. We've talked about this a lot from, from NASCAR. I would love to see that. Um, Dale Earnhardt Jr. would be another one who's just totally unrealistic, but would be absolutely amazing to see him do a race. Obviously he did the, the iRacing series last year, which was really cool to see, but um, yeah, he, he would definitely be another one to add to that list of maybe not going to happen, but would be super cool to see. Um, I, I think we were, I think as fans, we were robbed of Fernando Alonso in, in IndyCar and I think oh, it would have been absolutely 100%. phenomenal to see him do the full-time series as, as well as just the the odd 500. I think that would have been, you know, I think there's an alternate universe where that was realistic and likely and could have actually happened and uh, is a more realistic suggestion than Taylor Not Jr. that, uh, you know, I think it wouldn't even necessarily have, um, you know, 
not necessarily because I think he would have come in and dominated the series or, or, or blown everyone away, just because I think, in my opinion, he is one of the, the best all-round racing drivers in the world. And to see him do IndyCar would have been, you know, absolutely fantastic. I guess the only other, you know, we could talk all day about drivers who are good enough to to race in, in IndyCar. You know, there's there's a there's a there's a, a massive group and I'm sure we could reel off 20 or 30 drivers we'd like to see. But I guess the only other kind of out there suggestion that I could make that that would be kind of interesting would be Kamui Kobayashi because I think his aggress- yes. his aggressive driving style would just be perfect for IndyCar. And I would just love to see him come and, and give IndyCar a go. I think his style and his um, his attitude and his demeanour, I think the fans would love him. I think they would find him really entertaining. And ultimately, I think he is underrated from, for, from a wider motorsport context because I know a lot of sports car journalists and people in that in those circles rate him you know, really highly and obviously um, from, from his previous championships that he's raced in as well. And uh, I would just love to see him racing in IndyCar. Okay. I'm a hundred percent. I'm glad you brought that up because I'm a hundred percent with you on that. Just watching him even at Daytona, just at Daytona over the last few years, like there was, I think the first year that they won, uh, he was with Wayne Taylor and it was probably, I don't remember, who, I don't remember who the whole lineup was. It was, but for sure he and Scott were on Dixon were on the team. I I'm assuming maybe, maybe it was the Taylor brothers. I don't know, whatever. Um, that, I remember at the end of the race, I think it was, I think it was his first year as a part of that squad that they just left him in at the end. Like Scott was supposed to get in for the final stint and they were like, nah, he's, he's good. (laughs) Just, just leave him in there. Like he's crushing it. And, and I remember talking to Scott briefly about it, that he was just like, yeah, just the way that he, Scott was really, was impressed with how he just, it was, this is kind of a random and specific thing, but how he got off the brake pedal, like going into the bus stop, like just that, that, that one place on the track that it kind of took everybody else a minute to just figure out like, what is he even doing? Like, how is he carrying that much speed through there and keeping the car like sorted out, you know? And, And when you hear things like that from, from other drivers like that, like that just that was five or six years ago or something. And that's always stuck stuck in my mind is like, man, I bet he'd be good in an IndyCar. Like you just it's just the type of thing when you hear little things, um, you know, that guys can jump in. And he's obviously he's got the attitude for it, you know, like even remembering when he was back in F1, like it was just he's the type of guy that you like to watch race. So I yeah, I think you're a hundred percent on the money, on the money there. Um the second part of Marty's question here is, do we need a new car? In essence, is the DW12 outdated? And and I would say you could make an argument that we're, we're in need of a new car. I guess to me, the only reason, personally, the only reason to go to a new car is like, are we going to, the, the I guess a, from a just strictly sort of tactical perspective, like is the car getting too old the answer to that is no like from a safety perspective and and whatever else like they could run these chassis for another few years they'll continue updating them obviously we've got the aero screen now which is huge improvement they've been able to improve the crash structures and all of this stuff just as sort of iterating on this car so in in a lot of ways the current chassis like if you bought a chassis now it's it's a lot different actually than the original dw dw12 um, chassis was so just to to kind of get that piece of it out of the way in terms of moving on to a new chassis sort of for the sake of moving on to a new chassis 
I think that's a, a little less straightforward and, and basically just because it's like, well, why, you know, if we've got a good reason for why, like if we think that the vehicle formula fundamentally needs to be different or that the aero package on the car, as it relates to the chassis itself needs to substantially change somehow, like the way the floor is designed, the way the, you know, whatever, um, then sure. Everybody would be on board, I think with, with moving to a new chassis, but if we're not making those types of changes, then I don't think, I don't, I mean, I don't personally think those are in the immediate future for IndyCar. And so I don't think we'll see a chassis change in the next couple of years. Cause it's at, at the end of the day, this does come down to the chassis itself. When you make a chassis change, it's an enormous increase in expense for one year for the teams. Um, and we're already going to have that next year or, you know, at the end of next year between 22 and 23, the chassis itself obviously isn't changing. It's just going to these hybrid power units, but a bunch of other stuff to do with how that all fits in the car changes. So that's going to be, I think it's, it's something like 150 K or 200 K a car just to make those updates. Basically, you you think about throwing in a whole new chassis that everybody has to buy, you know, everything again from scratch, um, at the moment, you know, I don't, I don't think the equation is such that that's realistic to see happen for any particular reason in the immediate future. Oh, I would like IndyCar to find a way to lower the weight. Uh, I think that would be very beneficial. But uh, you know, I think the fundamentally the introduction of the aero screen is what's kind of pushed the weight, you know, higher. And then we're going to have the hybrid power units is going to even increase the weight more. So I think, I think weight saving is going to be an important thing moving forward. I think you're right. I think we'll see a phased introduction of updating the car. I don't think anything will come at once. I think it'll be too much of a, uh, a cost implication, but I think the problem is, you know, people can think that having a new chassis is a golden bullet where you're going to fix all of the series problems in inverted commas. Cause I don't think IndyCar has many problems when it comes to the on-track formula, but you know, obviously I think they could, uh, with with now with the aero screen they could make a better car for racing at the 500 specifically which is obviously the biggest race and the one that you want to focus on but there's no there's no guarantees here you know you could spend five years designing a chassis getting the aerodynamics right and then you know it turns up at indy and it's no better than the, the previous car so uh, i i just think it's too easily thrown around this as a as a proposition for championships to well we're just going to lob a new chassis at it because we're not hundred percent happy with the racing, but if you're kind of 80% happy with the racing and it's worth persevering and trying to, to make changes and update and and not give the teams that massive expense for, you know, something that potentially isn't going to improve things. So um, I think that's kind of where I'm at, to be honest, JR with that one. Yeah. And I, and I think that's a, that's frankly a very fair assessment of it that it, there are there are some things when it gets to a point you know the the aero screen is not fully integrated into the design of the chassis um you know there have been a lot of updates to the car over the course of the last you know 10 years so y- you could definitely with a new chassis you could integrate those things better the chassis would become lighter you would have the absolute most current um you know technology in terms of carbon layups and all this stuff you, you you'd improve the car like from a driver's perspective, yeah, you'd love to have a, a a new design to the chassis. But I think from from IndyCar and the team's perspective, there's just there's a lot of other things that factor into that. And I think to your point, Jack, you're, they're not gonna they're not gonna come out with a new chassis right now that's completely 
reinventing the wheel for IndyCar. So uh, just there's a lot of those factors that come into play. You only have to look at a championship like Formula One that has had, you know, fairly regular rules updates where obviously it's not exactly the same, but, you know, it's with F1, it's more obviously aero um, dictated rather than chassis dictated. But you, know, you only have to look at what's happened there over the years where they've done things that they say are going to have a specific impact on the on on the formula and it doesn't work or it's not exactly as the the rule makers want or the teams find a way around what the rule makers are trying to achieve with their rules and I think there's a lot to be said for keeping the rules the same. I think we've got to a point where the the IndyCar teams have a lot of things that they can build themselves. They have a lot of part freedom over parts that they can develop and and work with. And I think there's enough freedom there that there's still a lot of really good engineering work going on behind the scenes with these teams, but also we're getting a stable platform to build off where it's a fair kind of level playing field, you know, to a certain extent, obviously there's different budgets and things like that in IndyCar, but you know, for me, I think we're I think we're in a good space right now with where we're at. Obviously, it's going to get to a point where you know, in two or three years' time, we're going to be um, we're going to have a very old chassis. But I, I think we'll see kind of uh, staged updates and, and upgrades and things there. Thanks very much, Marty. Uh, we really I know JR said this earlier on, but we really appreciate your support of the podcast, and we enjoy interacting with you on on Twitter and by email as well. Um, JR, we'll just finish with this one, and then. I'm going to address another question that we had uh, just at the end here, but uh, Hadley Simmons or Simons, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, Hadley, um, suggested that we should do bring back cart, which would be nice. Uh, what if Sanadi never went to F1 in 1999? I'm sure we could spend quite a bit of time with that. Before you answer JR, Hadley, definitely make sure you go out and check, check out the Beast episode that we recorded earlier this year, just before the 500 with Alan Jr. and the author of the book, Beast Jade Gerse, where we did a deep dive in kind of bring back fashion, uh, I guess. Uh, I wouldn't want to uh, offend Glenn Freeman, who does the the bring back V10 series for the race, but I think we did a, a fairly uh, representative homage to that series by doing that, that deep dive. That was really fun and really enjoyed that. So Hadley, check that out. JR Zanardi, um, I think basically he would have won two more championships and then Ganassi fell off a little bit after that and he probably would have struggled a bit after that, I guess. But yeah, this is, uh, I, I kind of like these future storylines that you can do where you kind of move people around in the way that you want them to move instead of what actually happened and you kind of create a a chain effect of 10 years down the line. How would the, the championship look different? Yeah, I think uh, I would have loved to have seen Alex in a, you know, well, there's, there's a lot of things that sort of play into, I guess in, 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 in 99, that's far enough back that, you know, maybe he wasn't really in the frame for going to the Indy 500, but, you know, would have loved to have seen Alex run at Indy and oh, yeah. uh, that would have been really, really cool. I mean, uh, another component of this is like, could, what just imagine how amazing that whole era would have been if there wasn't for the split, you know, like all of the drivers yeah. that were the, the drivers, the way that the you know, the cart cars sort of continue to develop there over the next few years. It would have just been a completely epic thing to see. I guess the other part of that question, though, is like, do you really get do you get full JPM in the in the Ganassi car if Zanardi stays? And, you know, what happens there? We we might have we might have just been given up, given up one sort of incredible, uh, you know, brief initial stint in uh you know, in, in champ car at that time for another. So, uh, it's a, it's I could genuinely question. not picture those two as teammates. Oh no, there's no way. I can the not only, picture I mean, those two as teammates. Jimmy Vassar deserves a lot of credit for like 
<laughs> just being being chill enough to be able to handle being teammates with either of those guys probably at the, at that time in their like young peak of their careers you know and uh, another one for for Hadley definitely go back and check out a couple of our other episodes uh, in relation to this question I would recommend the indie this the first indie GP race we talked about this at length but he's asked uh, do you think blue flag rules need to change in IndyCar? Personally, I like the fact that cars get to fight to stay on the lead lap, but I also feel like it does need to be strictly enforced in certain scenarios, which I think is kind of where we got to, JL, wasn't it? That we felt like it would be nice to have a bit more kind of, um, like if you could de- dedicate someone at race control to be kind of looking at these kind of things, it would be nice to kind of uh, take it on a case-by-case basis. But obviously, <laughs> racing is never that simple, is it? <laughs> no. I mean, my my point of view on this has remained you know, pretty pretty similar over the course of these discussions, which is I basically think like, let it go until until everybody's made their final pit stops. And at that point, you enforce blue flag rules like much more strictly than you do for the rest of the race, because in IndyCar races in particular, you know, there's all kinds of things. We know that all all kinds of different stuff can happen um, sort of up until that point in the race. Like there's hardly ever, you know, you never get somebody that comes from a lap down to finish in the top five after everybody's already made their final pit stops, no matter what happens from a yellow flag perspective or whatever. So at that point, I think drivers would, would generally be willing to accept that like their fate is pretty sealed at that stage in the race. Um, and I think at that stage, you, you want to be able to, for the viewer, for the teams, for the drivers, for everybody, you want to be able to focus the attention then at that point on letting battles at the front, you know, play out among the people at the front without having, you know, sort of the distraction or the, um, you know, involvement of guys that just just aren't in the race. Sure. I guess I want to do a final shout out, JR, before we go to uh, motor underscore racing underscore addict or at motor race underscore addict on Twitter, who's asked us a series of questions about the rules in IndyCar in terms of testing and what the teams can do behind the scenes with parts and things like that. And that is something that a will take a little bit of time to go into, and B that the race will be doing quite a significant feature on in the next couple of weeks, where we'll be breaking that all down in a big feature as to what can happen in the off season and over the course of the season, but away from the racetrack, basically in terms of how these teams can improve and change things. So we'll revisit that on the next podcast and break down your question in a little bit more detail. So thanks very much, Motor Race Addict, for sending that one in. We're not ignoring you. We're going to answer that one once the feature is live later this week. So that's all, JR, unless you've got anything you want to get off your chest. I'll tell you what, I'll fire one more quick question at you. Very, very quick one. Uh, Kyle Kirkwood joining AJ Foyt Racing. We should cover that off as the news story that's kind of happened since we last did the podcast uh, obviously amazingly successful in Road to Indy and joining a team that you know relatively well as you competed in the 500 with them last year how excited are you by that move yeah I think it's going to be it's going to be really interesting to see Kyle's shown at every step along the you know along the ladder that he's just got what it takes and you know I think he's that he's the type of driver that you know a bit like we've you know some of the qualities of like you know, we've talked talked about Alex Pillow this year, just having that little bit of extra bandwidth kind of to to take things in. I'm I'm excited to see him in the in the Indy car. I haven't been present for any of his any of his testing, and I don't think he'll be in the Foyt car probably until after the first of the year. Um, but the uh yeah, I'll be really excited to see sort of what he brings to the table. I know the team is the team is pumped to have him have him on board. And um, 
yeah, I mean, it's, it's the first, the first step in, you know, what hopefully will be, you know, a great career for him. So I know he's, he's had some, he's had some options. He's had some difficult decisions to make over the last couple of months, just in, in terms of how all this stuff has played out. And I think he's, he's leaving his options a little bit further down the road, sort of more open-ended by making this choice. I think it's just a one-year deal, but um, yeah, it'd be great to see him. You know, you, we've got, you know, three Indy Lights grads, you know, coming into the series next year, you know, so even these years when the Indy Lights field seems pretty thin, it's good to see, good to see that sort of continued, you know, evolution coming up. And I mean, thin just in terms of, you know, overall car count. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I think my, um, I think my probably slightly harsh opinion at this point is that I think Kyle is going to f- struggle to, to achieve something better than what Sebastian Bourdain and Justin Taylor were able to do last year. I think it's going to be a, a real uphill struggle, but I guess the team are hoping that bringing in someone as exciting as Kyle is going to help them to attract some people into the team. And it's going to, you know, bring the overall kind of, uh, I guess camaraderie of the team is is going to be uh, is going to be quite cool, and having that young kind of thirsty rookie in there is going to, you know, it's a it's a bit of a departure from, you know, maybe having more experienced or, or veteran lead drivers in the past for that team. So I think it's some, maybe something nice that will kind of mix things up for them and, and give them, you know, some some different options. So so that's cool. I think the other thing, Joe, I just wanted to say to you because I knew you'd like this, was that Colton Herter is younger than two of the four rookies that we're going to have on the grid next year, which is something that. Yeah. It's just absolutely just as a as a huge Colton fan. Um, I know you would like that one. It's a that is an absurd statistic considering he's got to be one of the favourites to to win the championship next year going into it. And what someone that we obviously uh, always uh, like to watch. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Race IndyCar podcast. Make sure you tweet us at JL Hildebrand at Jack Benyon if you've got more questions that you want us to address during the off season. And we'll be back soon with another episode. Mm-hmm.